Hello and welcome to Bible 101. We're live here with a couple of my friends once again, Brother Greg Ross, Brother Eric Feeman. And uh, we are going to be doing another question and answer session. Question and answer session. Let me say that right. Um, and last time we dealt with uh, specific things talking about, you know, baptism, Holy Ghost, uh, one God. But this time we're actually going to be dealing with questions that maybe are a little more in depth. So uh, I apologize to the person out there that may not be familiar with some of the things we're going to be bringing up. But if you're around the church for any period of time, you're going to probably hear some of the things we're going to be presenting here tonight. And, um, you know, really, I, I said it last time, but our purpose is, number one, to reach the lost. We want to reach lost people out there. Uh, and number two, we also want to arm uh, people that maybe are not familiar with uh, the doctrine. We want to arm them with answers because the Bible says be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. And uh, mm -hmm. I believe we ought to be ready to give an answer for everything. And so uh, the best thing that you can do is when you have a question, go to God in prayer. But I'm hoping that we could set up this resource that maybe uh, help you to not have to dig so much. And, and uh, maybe you could just take some of the information we we give you today and uh, take it, apply it to your life, but also maybe go and study it more in depth and learn more for yourself. So uh, we're going to be dealing with several issues here. And I'm going to give the first question to Brother Greg Ross. Uh, we're going to be talking about, first of all, is there a literal place called hell? And maybe you'll want to talk about why this would even be a question. Thank you, Brother Mills. Good to be with everyone again that might be listening or will be listening in the future. And um, this question about a literal hell. And uh, the reason we would spend just a little bit of time with this is because there are some out there that would say that there is a spiritual hell or a or hell is just simply an annihilation uh, that happens very quickly. But like all the questions we deal with on Bible 101, what does the scripture say and what does the Bible say? So we're going to go directly to the scripture right now. And if possible, wherever you're at, turn to, to uh, Luke chapter 16. This is one that uh, comes up quite often when the subject of hell comes up. And uh, <clears throat> in Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 9, is a uh, very familiar to anyone that reads the Bible story of a rich man and a man by the a man that is a beggar by the name of Lazarus. Now there is some discussion, perhaps debate, on whether or not this is a a uh, parable or is it a true real story. I'm going to settle the debate today. It is a true story. Okay, glad we got that settled, and uh, nothing more to debate about there. It is a true story, <clears throat> but. Nevertheless, even if it was a parable, uh, Jesus is still talking about a very real place. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole story. I'm going to just barely uh, briefly mention that it has to do with a rich man. It has to do with a uh, man by the name of Lazarus, who's a beggar. Uh, they both died. They both died. The Bible says in verse 22 that the beggar was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Uh, listen to verse 23. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments. And he saw Abraham afar off. And in verse 24, he cried and began to cry out and say, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Why? For I am tormented in this flame. And so we see some very, very... Um, 
visual. It's a very, a very visual scene that we're seeing here. This man is in a place the Bible calls hell. And what's taking place in hell is that he is in torments. And he says, I am tormented in this flame. Also, I would like for you to turn to uh, uh, Matthew chapter well, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. I'm not going to read the whole thing, <clears throat> but Jesus simply says, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. A few verses later, Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, he says, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into life eternal. Jesus talks about two groups of people here. He talks about a group of people that would go into everlasting punishment. Notice the key word here, everlasting. The punishment is everlasting. It doesn't last for a brief moment of time. It is everlasting punishment. And then he mentions the group of people that would be going into uh, life eternal. I don't know about you here today, but I trust everyone listening would want to be a part of that group of the righteous that would enter into life eternal because your ever-living, non-dying, immortal soul will spend eternity somewhere, either in this place called hell or a place called heaven. Mark chapter 9, if you want to turn there with me, Mark chapter 9 and verse 42, Jesus speaking again, and uh, uh, you can read verse 42, verse 43 uh, talks about if your hand offends thee, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell. And what's hell like? It's fire that never shall be quenched. Verse 44, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Verse 45, cut your foot off. It's better for thee to, to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched. Verse 46, where the worm dieth and not and the fire is not quenched. Verse 48, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Turn with me to Revelation <clears throat> and we'll read a few verses of scriptures here and make a few closing comments on this particular subject upon this question today. Reve Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the lamb. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night to worship the beast in his image, whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Revelation chapter 19. And verse 20, and the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. One more verse of scripture in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. The Bible says, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. These are very plain, very plain, literal passage of scriptures that speak of fire 
smoke, brimstone, torments that last forever and ever. May I say to you today to question the reality of the littleness of hell questions the word of God. I think the word of God very plainly, very explicitly speaks to us that hell is a literal place, that there are a group of people that will go there. And there's a group of people that will enter into life eternal. And we speak, speak about it much on here. You want to be a part of the saved, the, those, the righteous that would enter into life eternal. Obey Acts 2.38. Repent of your sins. Be baptized in Jesus' name. God will fill you with the Holy Ghost. You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to go to that place called hell. In fact, uh, it's, you can look it up. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven. And, and people, humans, will spend eternity somewhere. They will always exist, whether in heaven or hell. And one uh, final word about uh, annihilationism. Annihilationism is a false doctrine that basically says that you will, hell would be something you will burn up very quickly in a matter of seconds and you will be gone forever. And let me just say this about that. Not, that type of annihilationism isn't punishment, as the Bible plainly declares. Mm -hmm. That would be escaping punishment. Right. right. That would be escaping punishment. Okay, what I'm going to say is basically just going to tackle on a few points. I'm going to use some of the same scriptures, but let me kind of uh, focus on something else here. Uh, the emergent church teaches against the doctrine of hell, and they basically grapple with it this way. How could a loving God send people to an eternal hell? Uh, well, this let me explain it this way. God is a loving God, but he's simply giving people what they want when he sends them to hell. They want to escape his presence. So he sends them to a place where they can't escape his presence. He removes his presence from hell. That's why there's eternal torment there. That's what life is without God. It's eternal torment. Uh, so let me talk about this fact. Is hell really eternal? Brother Ross has talked about the fact, is there a literal place called hell? Well, I'm going to present it this way. I'm going to give you uh, the words of John the Baptist. I'm going to give you the words of Jesus. I'm going to give you the words of Paul. I'm going to give you the words of Peter. And I'm going to give you the words of John. First of all, the words of John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The word unquenchable is asbestos, and it means not extinguished, uh, eternal fire. All right, let's look at the words of Jesus. Matthew 18 and 8. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, we heard it earlier, cut them off and cast them off from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. The word everlasting in the Greek, it means without beginning and end, that which always has been and always will be, without beginning, without end, never to cease, everlasting. A few more scriptures Jesus said here in Matthew 25, 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye accursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Mark 9, 43 through 44. And if thy, once again, basically the same thing he's saying here, If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Notice that where the worm dieth not, not even the worm, one of the smallest and most feeble creatures, will uh, be consumed by the fire. 
it, it will uh, even that would survive in hell. Matthew 8 and 12, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice weeping, continual, gnashing, continual. All right, so that's the words of Jesus. I think that's very clear, and I could give a lot more references, but for the sake of time, I'm just giving a few. The words of the Apostle John. Remember, call him the love apostle. Well, let's find out what the love apostle had to say about hell. Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. That's not teaching annihilation. That's saying their torment continually goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, neither day nor night, who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So notice it's not annihilation. They have no rest day or night. It's continual. It moves on and on and on. Okay, let's look at the words of the Apostle Paul. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7 through 9. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven and with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Notice that taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's exactly what I was talking about. Hell is it's uh, being away from the presence of the Lord. Notice the connection of fire and everlasting destruction. All right, let's look at the words of the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter 3, 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition. Notice that word perdition of ungodly men. The, the word perdition means destruction. Scripture is very clear and consistent on the matter. matter. Hell is a place of eternal torment. I, I really think that's good enough to cover that. Uh, to cover that. Uh, there's just a lot of people that, that uh, grapple with God sending people to hell. And, you know, it's, it's often said that God is a God of love. God is a God of love. But God is also a just God. And uh, we may not be able to understand hell. To be honest, I'm sitting here tonight, and I don't think I can say I comprehend everything there is to comprehend about it. Brother Eric, Brother Ross, I think you all would agree with me that uh, I, I may not be able to understand everything about God and why he would send people to hell. But one thing is sure, the scripture tells us very implicitly that there is such a place as hell and it is eternal. Yes. And it's a place that's uh, reserved for those who don't don't want to be in the presence of God. So God gives them what they want. And we don't have to go there. Could, could right. I just say also too that Matthew uh, 25, 41 tells us what hell was prepared for. Mm -hmm. um, it says, thou shalt say unto them, the left hand depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So when God created hell, he never had had uh, mankind in mind. It was for um, the devil and his angels. And we find out in Isaiah 5 and 14, the Bible tells us that hell has enlarged herself. And the reason why hell's had to enlarge itself is because so many people have fallen prey to, this, to the destruction, um, the deception of, you know, and, and fell prey to the devil. And so therefore, that's why we have to go to hell. We put ourselves there. It's not that God created it for us. Yes, I don't have the scripture reference in front of me, but the demons know they're going to hell because mm -hmm. they told him, hey, you know, don't don't send us to that place before the time. Right. So uh, obviously they know their destination and they want everybody to share that destination yes, with them. True. They don't want anybody to yeah, be I hell. always just think about when I, when I think about that is realize that God didn't create hell for me. 
That's right. That's very good. Amen. All right. So uh, number three is a question for Brother Eric Feeman. And did miracles die with the death of the apostles? All right. Well, simply um, anybody that's been alive in uh, Sioux County True Tabernacle Church here can knows the answer to that question. We've seen many multiple miracles be done here uh, through the 31 years and plus that pastor has been here preaching. And uh, so the quick answer to that is no, miracles have not died with the death of the apostles. But I thought about this, and there's like three different uh, questions that came to mind when asking, like, why would this question come about? And the question that comes to mind is, do you believe the word of God? Um, Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, the word of our God shall endure forever. Matthew 24, 35 says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Jesus said the same thing in Mark 13, 31. Uh, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. So the word of God is uh, expressed throughout the throughout scripture. We can find out that God has talked about uh, healing the sick and uh, healing diseases and all these kind of things. The word of God says things like Psalms 103.3, who forgiveth all thine iniquity, who healeth all thy diseases. Mark 16 and 18, that they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. 1 Corinthians 12.28, and that God hath set some in the church. Remember, be mindful there that it says church, which the church is still present today. First apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles. Why don't people see them today? That's the number two question. Why don't people see them today? Miracles are still happening today because every one of us that are sitting here today have experienced it, witnessed it, seen it with our own eyes. But to prove them to you is a matter of faith. In Matthew 9, 29, Jesus tells them, says, according to your faith, so be it unto you. There's probably um, fewer, I would say, and this is something I thought of, but I would say there's probably fewer miracles in the Bible than you actually think. And there's probably more miracles today than you probably know of. And so, therefore, you can make the comparison and the contrast that when you think about the Bible, you think about it being a book of miracles. But then when you think about David, or I'm sorry, it wasn't even David, but King, or but, the, but Asaph saying in the Psalms, and he brings it into our perspective. He says, <laughs> Uh, in Psalms 77, 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the wonders of old. This is not saying that God was unable to still work miracles in Asaph's time, but if you think about it, they were a lot more pronounced during the days of Moses than they were during the days of the early kings. And then you realize they seem to pick up again along the lines of the days of Elijah and Elisha. So think about that Jesus raised three people from the dead in his earthly ministry. That a whole lot more of that, more than three died. So that doesn't mean that Jesus was unable to raise the dead just because more people were staying dead than, than <laughs> were becoming alive. But um, so then when we begin to look like you, uh, we just don't see every day doesn't mean it isn't miracles working among us. Yes. Um, I would say that if we um, took the church collectively, compiled a list based off saints, preachers, missionaries um, worldwide, a lot more is going on than you actually hear of and realize that's that's actually taking place. True. The greatest miracle is when a soul is saved and a life is transformed by the power of the Holy Ghost. Yeah. We see that happen uh, many, many times here. It's happened in uh, even people that listen to the podcast. If you're the apostolic persuasion, you've received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and God has transformed your life, which is a awesome miracle. But it's not talked about much by the religious world. Why? Uh, because the world is distracted by so many other things. They're more caught up in uh, maybe like things like sports, a home run or a touchdown, than they are 
of cancer being cured or a wheelchair being emptied. Right. They look more at political figures and sports stars than they do the power of God. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> number three question is, how can we witness them today? Second um, Chronicles 7.14 tells us, If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Matthew 13, 58 said he did not many mighty works because of their unbelief. Mark um, 5, 34, thy faith hath made thee whole. And I'm going to read real quick here, Matthew 17, um, 18 through 20. Matthew 17, 18 through 20. Make sure I wrote it down right because I didn't do it last time. <laughs> yes, you're right. Okay. And he said, because of, uh, and Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. So when you think about it, and why don't we see it today, uh, there's a lack of faith among believers. That, sure. And so a lot of, and like I said before, uh, because of their unbelief, he could not do many mighty works. And in Hebrews 13 and 8, we find out that Apostle Paul or the writer of Hebrews, which we presume to be the Apostle Paul, um, says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so with that, I think that pretty much sums it up that Jesus Christ was healing uh, the, the sick and healing all manner of diseases and raising the dead in the New Testament and in the Bible. Then the same Jesus Christ that is alive and well in the hearts of men and women and uh, is able to do so today. We know that James also told us that if there's any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them lay hands on them, anointing them with oil, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise them up. And so I think that pretty much kind of covers the basis of whether or not miracles are still alive and well with the church today. And Brother Eric, I want to put you on the spot. Sure. I have a question. Okay. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Okay. And concerning this question, is did, did the is the miracle stop? A lot of times, the, this verse of scripture will come up in that uh, first sure. Corinthians, first Corinthians chapter thirteen, right, starting at verse eight. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail; whether there be tongues, they shall cease; whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away; whether we know in part, we prophesy in part, but that which is perfect is come, then that which is part shall be done, done away. I know a lot of times that scripture is used for. Uh, talking in tongues, you know, well, tongues have ceased. But I, I have heard people use that to say that, um, well, you know, the, once the apostles went away, then the, then the miracles ceased. And the only reason the apostles could do miracles because they was under the ministry of Jesus. Once they all died, then all the miracles stopped. I don't know if you had any comments on that. <clears throat> no, just not, not, not necessarily on that line because I didn't, I didn't really think well, of yeah, that scripture. When, yeah, but um. You know, I, I would say, too, as we, we mentioned before, you can't take one scripture. For one thing, that scripture doesn't actually point out. It doesn't True. say miracles, although True. they they seem to link miracles with the speaking True. in tongues, right. which we, we see happen on a daily basis. So, you you know, you're, you come too late to tell us the experience of the Holy right. Ghost. Yeah. Baptism of the Holy Ghost, evidence in speaking in other tongues is not real. You come too late to tell us that the, the miracles yeah. that we've seen and the things that have happened, the signs and wonders that have happened in the church, uh, you know, you, you can't second guess that. You can't question that. That's exactly right. So the things that are happening in current, the, the current church is, is experiencing the same things that happen in the book That's of Acts. exactly right. 
Yes, uh, I think one of the uh, arguments that Church of Christ will bring up is they say, well, if there's really still miracles going on in your midst, why don't you just walk into the hospital and heal everything that's sick? Uh, my response to that would be even Jesus could not do miracles in his hometown because of their unbelief. Right. And uh, I think in the modern day, there's medicine and there's uh, a lot of different things. I'm not teaching against medicine, but there's a lot of different things that people lean on. The arm of flesh, the physician, uh, the doctors, everything else. Back in those days, they didn't have any choice but to believe. If they wanted to see a physician, good luck. You're going to have to get on your beast and ride for miles and miles and miles and miles, possibly days journey to get to a physician. Uh, to see him. And you couldn't just pick up a phone and ask, hey, can you give me a prescription for such and such? They had to believe. They didn't have a choice. And uh, I'm also thinking of where Paul, the Bible says in one place, he says, uh, I think it was, is it um, uh, Trophimus? I think it is that he said, I left it, my lead him sick. Is that, mm -hmm. is that what it is? I, I may be misquoting ready, that, but I'm uh, just getting ready to say the same thing. Then. Yes. So, uh, and then it's something else I want to point out, Brother Ross, you brought out First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, but my response to that would be uh, in the words of a great debater, uh, he used to say it like this. He said, he said, uh, face to face, not face to book. And because what they're saying there is that when that which is perfect has come, they say, well, that's the canon of scripture. But notice what he says here. He says, for now uh, we know in part, and he says, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I become a man, I put away childish things for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even also as I am known. Paul wasn't even alive when, when the New Testament was canonized. I think that really should settle the matter there. Plus, uh, it also says whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. So don't claim to know anything if uh, <laughs> yeah, the gifts right. of the spirit and yeah. miracles right. have ceased. You know, knowledge is also vanished away. Often wonder. Um, since we're just having a discussion here and Angela along the way, um, how and I've talked to Church of Christ people before that does, do not believe in miracles, and, and to me that is so sad that it does that that would just be such an empty empty life. How, what do you thank God for? I mean, you know, yeah. what you know? Why why pray that He would why, perform a miracle? You know, someone's sick. If you're sick, why why would you? Pray for someone that's sick because you don't believe that God's going to heal them. Why yes. would you pray for God helping a situation because you don't believe that God answers those type of prayers anymore? And uh, let me let me stop you right there because I think what some of them would say is we don't deny the fact that God can still do miracles. We deny the fact that He still uh, has apostles that have the ability to heal. So they would deny that spiritual gifts are still in operation. And uh, basically, they would say that, uh, you know, somebody claims I have the gift of healing. They would debate that because they would say, well, no, there's no way you have the gift of healing because the spiritual gifts have ceased, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, and one thing I, I want to tag into something Brother Eric said, and I think this is worth discussion. This is a good subject to discuss, uh, is if you look at miracles were the most prominent in you got the days of Moses. Well, when Moses was on the earth, great opposition had arisen. Pharaoh great work needed to take place. God delivered them out of Egypt. Okay. So consider the fact during the days of Moses, there's great miracles. And then for a while, there's a dearth, not that God does not perform miracles. He right. performed miracles sure. for Joshua, but we don't see all the same types of miracles. We don't see the plagues. We do see the drying up of Jordan's banks. We do see some of these things, Jericho walls falling. We do see supernatural things taking place. Uh, but then if you go and you look at Elijah, 
miracles rise once again in the days of Elijah, and they're very prominent during his days. But uh, then you could point to the tremendous opposition. Ahab and Jezebel had turned Israel over completely to Baal worship. The difference between Ahab and Jezebel versus the other kings, they all would uh, worship Baal on the side, or you know, they all continued to do the, the works of Jeroboam, and they practiced Baal worship on the side. But what happened with Jezebel was she set Baal worship up as the prominent religion and killed the, pre the prophets of Jehovah in her days. So that's what made them so much worse. So you see there's a rise of miracles. And so this is this is my point. I'm not saying there wasn't miracles throughout the rest of the Bible. Uh, then obviously you have the days of Jesus. First time you read of demons being cast out. You read of the dead being raised. That's not the first time, but you do read of the dead being raised. You read of all these different types of miracles opening the blinded eyes, which as far as I know, that had never happened before. Uh, you see all these other things. So basically, why why is that? Because it's it's a new time in history, a new a new point in history. And uh, then you look at uh, in the last days, the Bible says that miracles are going to be great. So my point is, it's almost like God sometimes will uh, let miracles become more prominent during periods of history where they're needed. You see what I'm saying? Uh, because, it, yeah, that's that's the point I'm making here. Where there's great opposition, God also brings somebody into power that that uh, you know that that brings with him great miracles, great signs and wonders and order. There's always a purpose in miracles. It's not just to impress you. Right. Yes, sometimes it's to heal, but sometimes it's also to call, make an unbeliever a believer. And uh, that's the re what is the purpose of Jesus's miracles? Yes, it's beautiful that he opened the blinded eyes. But if you want to really grapple with something, look at John chapter number nine he said this man was not born blind because of the sin of his parents or because of his own sin he said this man was born blind that he might show forth the works of god this man went through how many years of blindness just so god could could reveal his power through jesus christ but think of the testament how many that turned toward jesus so uh, and then you can look at also the apostles and, and the great works and miracles that happened in their day but i think one of the reasons why you mentioned it in our day we're seeing a great uh, amount of miracles one of the reasons is we're in the last of the last days and god's about to return to the earth and i would also say too just briefly here what, what you talking about there being different segments of time also god has to have a vessel Yes. And, I, you know, you think about Moses and even you mentioned Joshua. Mm -hmm. But then later on, where there seems to be a little bit of a law in miracles, the Bible does tell us that the word of God was precious in those days. Yes. So true. there wasn't a whole lot of maybe wasn't a whole lot of vessels. Right. And then when then once, you know, Samuel came along and then we found out, you know, we got the kings and then then there was the the Elijah came along. And of course, you know, we got the double portion to Elisha. So yes. miracles were more prominent. Yes. But because there was a vessel that God could use. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's all kinds of stuff we could say about that, but I'll go ahead and move on to the next one just for the sake of time. Uh, my question is, can a Christian lose the Holy Ghost? We're talking about an apostolic, somebody that receives the gift of the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking in other tongues. Can they lose it? Well, there's several things we could say. Uh, one of the things I'll just bring up right off the bat is I think there's very clear evidence of the fact that you can lose the Holy Ghost because if you're uh, an apostolic, you've for any length of time, you've probably seen a backslider come back that had to have the devil cast out of them. God and the devil are not going to dwell in a temple at the same time. I know the charismatics teach that, but uh, that's just not true. And uh, God's not going to inhabit an unclean temple. And uh, But let me go ahead and just give you some other scriptures too. And maybe, Brother Eric, I'll let you bring up that one about Matthew 12 that you were talking about because uh, I did not actually have this written down in notes, but you had that uh, brought up before we even started recording. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. I really think all you need is two scriptures to prove this 
uh, that a Christian can lose the Holy Ghost. First Corinthians 9, 27, Paul says this, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. Uh, castaway, Greek word, uh, adokimos. And it, uh, what it means is reprobate. It means disqualified or disapproved. Now, one thing you say disapproved, disapproved for what? Disapproved for salvation. Uh, how is somebody going to have the Holy Ghost inside of them and yet be disapproved? Okay, and I'll get into that more often, uh, more uh, uh, later on in this discussion. And then it also means disqualified, but it means primary meaning reprobate. Okay, now watch the same Greek word is going to be used in this other passage. Same writer, Paul, Second Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse five. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Now remember, he's writing to the church. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you? except or unless you be reprobate. Mm -hmm. Same word, a documos, same Greek word. A reprobate is someone that does not have the spirit of Christ in them. They have been rejected. They have been disapproved. He has removed his presence from them. If you want more proof of that, look at Romans 1, 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over, notice that, to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not Convenient. Let me read another translation of that. The New Living Translation says this. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Notice that God abandoned them. Paul feared that he could be abandoned by God after he had preached to others. Okay. Keep following my logic because we're going to get into something here in just a minute. Someone might argue with this and say that we are sealed with his spirit. And God will not remove his seal. I've heard that argument. I had a guy at the prison use that on me. Okay, Ephesians 4.30. This is what he pulled from. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Consider this, however. Circumcision was the seal of the covenant in the Old Testament. Genesis 17.10-13. Right. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be, watch this, a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. Watch this very carefully. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Notice the word token and notice the word everlasting covenant. A token is a sign. Children of Abraham that were circumcised were sealed by God. Watch this, Romans 4.11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe. Though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Just in case you don't think this has anything to do with the Holy Ghost, hang on. I'm, I'm, I'm making a point here. Yet the seal, even though circumcision was given to them for a seal of an everlasting covenant, it could become null and void if they did not obey the law. Romans 2, 24 through 25. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written, for circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. So you may still be circumcised in the flesh, but God sees your circumcision as uncircumcision. Okay, so follow the logic. A Jew could have the seal of God's covenant in his flesh 
and disobey the law and in God's eyes be uncircumcised? Could not the same be said for the seal of the Holy Ghost? Now watch this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. When you receive the Holy Ghost, you became the temple of God. If you then defile that temple, God will destroy you. Again, follow the logic. The Old Testament temple was destroyed when God removed his presence. Watch this, Ezekiel 9 and 3. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub. If you've done any study about uh, how the temple was laid out, you have the, the cherubims, which were over the mercy seat, right? So here you have the glory of God gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. Ezekiel 10, 4. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. So now he's in the court. Okay, Ezekiel 10, 18 through 19. Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims and the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels also were beside them and everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of, uh, of the God of Israel was over them above. If you study this and look at what it's saying, it's saying that the presence of God is slowly departing from the temple. He's at one place when he sees him, then the next time he's at another place, then the next time he's up above, hovering over the temple, almost like he said, I really don't want to leave, but I've got to leave. Why? Because they've defiled my temple. Okay. So once again, follow the logic. God will not destroy something that contains his presence. He will first remove himself from that vessel and then he will destroy it. So hopefully that discusses. Now I could say a whole lot more about it, but hopefully that'll suffice. You guys got anything to add? I would just say, and adding what what you had mentioned there, I didn't have it in my original one that I got here for the one saved always saved. But um, going back to Matthew twelve um, and forty three, it says, "When an unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and finding none." And he said, "I will return into my house whence I came out." And when he has come, he findeth it empty, mm -hmm. swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh it with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be in this wicked generation. Uh, notice there it says that they find it empty. And so therefore nothing was occupying the, the heart there. And that, it, But it was swept and garnished but it was empty because God had removed himself because of uh, someone's sin or because the, the Holy Ghost had been departed. And then we see that um, he also says the man, the state of that man is worse than the first. Well, at first he was lost. So when you look at it, he was at first lost and now he's, he's worse than lost. And so meaning, and, and only, only reason I could say worse than lost is because nothing is worse than being lost knowing what it is to taste the, the glory of God yes. and have the Holy Ghost. It would be worse being lost sitting on a pew, um, knowing uh, the apostolic tr truth, and then to, to uh, be lost and walk away from that would be worse. Yes, and let me add to that, Second uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, verse number 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. 
For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So I think that's very clear. Who is he writing to? He's writing to the church. And one other thing I'll say is, and I've used this many, many times, but I think one of the clearest examples that somebody that was once, and I understand you're probably going to get into some of this in a minute, so I'll be careful, but uh, somebody that was once filled with the Holy Ghost, that they could lose it and backslide, uh, is the book of Hebrews. And uh, in the book of Hebrews, the whole purpose while he's writing, he's writing to Jewish Christians who have turned away from Judaism and turn to the living God, and He's warning them: don't turn back uh, to un, uh, don't turn back to the law, because if you do that, verse in chapter six, He talks about it's impossible for those who are once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, made partakers of the world to come. But He says, made partakers of the Holy Ghost. He said, if they shall turn away, it's impossible for, to renew them again to repentance, meaning that they've turned away, and God has removed His Spirit. And then it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. But what he's talking about context there, he's talking to Jewish Christians. And he said, if you turn back now, you put him to an open shame because those Jews are going to say, well, there's nothing to that Christianity. Because obviously this Jew, you know, that departed from us and went to Christianity has come back to us. So, uh, you know, they're, they're under a strict judgment if they turn away from Christianity. Okay. Um, now we have... Uh, uh, other questions here. Sorry, guys. Let me pull up my questions right. if I can get it to work here. Um, the next thing is once saved, always saved. And Brother Eric Feeman's going to address that. Yes. And that kind of goes really hand in hand with what Brother Mills is talking about there. Because if you're apostolic, one is Pentecostals, like we are, we you know, believe that when you receive the Holy Ghost, which we were talking about losing, that therefore you are saved. And so if you would lose the Holy Ghost, <clears throat> therefore you would not be saved anymore. And so uh, that refutes the doctrine of the one saved, always saved. Um, my mind got to racing a little bit this week, and I was thinking some for a little bit on it, and I made an eerie comparison of the Calvinistic notion of the eternal security with the seduction of uh, Eve in the Garden of Eden in um, Genesis 3, 4. The serpent assured Eve, you shall not surely die. The implication being that Eve could live in disobedience without divine consequences. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the that is the um, thing we get when you begin to discuss um, once saved always saved. A family member I was discussing this topic with brought up um, Romans eight thirty five through thirty nine, and um, I'm just going to read that real quick. Um, it says, "Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or peril or sword? As it is written." For thy sake we have killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I told, and when my relative mentioned that, the words that I said was, boy, what an encouraging verse. It's encouraging, but it doesn't say anything in there about salvation uh, leaving you. It talks about the love of God, and I'm not disputing the unconditional love of God. God loves people, and uh, so this um, person, as we mentioned here, I also said, also, let, let me think of any sin that was mentioned in that phrase. 
or in, in that verse. There's no sin mentioned, nor is there really any sin involved. And it's talking about God's unconditional love and unconditional, but not unconditional salvation. Nothing can force you to separate yourself from God except for you. Um, this once saved, um, always saved doctrine directly contradicts scripture. Right. Um, the doctrine commonly justifies sinful lifestyles. It gives false legitimacy to sin, false comfort for sinners, and it, place, and it places a barrier between sinners and repentance. And then going back to Eve, she had a free moral will. So did Adam, and the devil could not make them sin. However, they chose to sin on their own. The, cell, the devil, therefore, cannot make you sin, but there is consequences if you do. Sin separates us from, the, with, from a relationship with God, but not from the love of God. Romans 5 and 8 tells us that God commendeth his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But the cross doesn't make sin acceptable. Um, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, um, it just simply says, uh, For hereunto ye are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who in his own self bears sins, his own body on the tree, that we being dead in sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. So we, we look and see here that we should live righteously. So you can say, well, that doesn't really prove the whole uh, once saved, always saved thing. It's just saying you should. And there's, there's you know, that in self doesn't debunk it all on its own because there is some people who believe that, well, you should live righteously anyway, you know, but don't mean you have to in order to, uh, doesn't mean that it's a requirement to make heaven. Um, but Mark 14, 16 gives us a parable of the sower. This speaks of people who have received, um, re notice received, not rejected the word of God with joy, but because of affliction fell away. It seems that Paul had some foreknowledge that this doctrine would arise as he, uh, as he began to deal with the past, uh, deal with this in passages along um, the lines in Hebrews. And this is the book of Hebrews. Uh, we can find different uh, scriptures here. It says, For it is impossible for those who once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the word to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing that they crucify themselves, the Son of God, afresh. And put him to an open shame. I'm aware that Brother Mills just read these, but I had them, so I'm just going to go ahead and reiterate them here. Uh, Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. For if we sin willfully that we have received the knowledge of truth, there remaineth no sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for the judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Um, Hebrews 10, 38 to 39. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. The word there could be destruction, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And so it seems that um, Peter also picks it up and begins to talk about it. And uh, if if you had time to take, if you take time there real quick, we'll, we'll read that. Um, and uh, Peter says, um, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will. I'm sorry, I'm reading the one that Jesus said, but it's still, That's still, okay. it's still, still good, still, yeah. still applying. <laughs> right. Jesus is, uh, Jesus said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, 
have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And uh, we could go on and on different um, things that could be said there. Uh, but I, for the sake of that, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll leave that alone. But um, we can go to, um, uh, let me see here where I'm at. Find my place here. Um, we could go on for the sake of time and, and talk about different things, uh, different scriptures that would, would cover the basis of this um, that indicate what Philippians 2 and 12 tells us. And it's the, um, the work of that you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And uh, this can, uh, just for the sake of time here, I just wrote down a list of things. List, this list can tells us what children of God can do. And it says, uh, number one, they can fall from grace. Galatians 5, 1 through 4 and verse 13. They can be led into error. 2 Peter 3, 17. Err from the truth, James 5, 19 through 20. Um, number four, they can, a weak brother may perish, uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 11. Number five, they can fall into condemnation, James 5 and 12. Number six, can be moved away from the hope, Colossians 1, 21 and 23. Number seven, they can deny the Lord who bought them, 2 Peter 2 and 1. Number eight, they depart from the living God, Hebrews 3 and 12. And number nine can be a castaway, uh, 1 Corinthians 9 and 27. And number 10 can become accursed children, 2 Peter 2 and 14. Mm -hmm. And so with that, I think that pretty much covers the basis of, you know, whether or not you can be saved and you're, you're always saved. Uh, we, we talked about, like I said, it goes with um, losing the Holy Ghost there. And, uh, you know, one and the same Holy Ghost is salvation. And the Bible says the Holy Ghost will not dwell in an unclean temple. So we, we as Christians, as apostolic Christians, I uh, believe you've got to live your life accordingly, live your life the way that God wants you to live so that for he wants to dwell inside of your temple. And in doing so, uh, you know, your, your light will shine and the world will be able to tell there's something different about that Christian, right. something different about that person. And so with that, that's all I have to say on that. Do you have something to add, Brother Ross? Yeah, a couple things real quick. I, uh, this is always a good subject to talk about because um, we, we all run into people say, once saved, always saved. Once in grace, always in grace. No man can pluck you out of my hand. And those things are thrown around. A couple, a couple of illustrations I usually use when I'm talking to someone about this or if I'm teaching a lesson about uh, eternal, unconditional, eternal salvation. <clears throat> um, I, I go into a long story, but just keep it, keep it short. If so, sometimes people get lost in the woods. I've been lost in the woods before. I mean, literally lost. And I mean, going in circles lost. And it was quite, uh, I wasn't scared. I was like, oh, how, what am I going to do here? But anyway, long story short, people that get lost, or sometimes you read stories about a little kid getting lost in the woods and all the, all the rescue people go out and all the neighbors go out to find this lost kid and they find him. And because that kid or that person is, is found and saved from being lost in the woods does not mean that they can ever go out and be lost, lost again in the woods. Uh, I, I know people, I, I, there was a young girl one time that was in a boat that fell out. And uh, at first we were all laughing and found out that she couldn't swim. And I jumped in and I guess I helped save her, get her back in the boat. That doesn't mean she can, she, because she was saved from drowning does not mean she can never drown again. One verse of scripture in, in Revelation chapter three, the angel of the church of Sardis is receiving some instruction from the word of God. 
And when he gets down to verse five, he says this, he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. <clears throat> if, if Jesus is saying, I will not blot out your name out of the book of life, I think the obvious reference there is that he can blot your name out of the book of life. Possibility exists. If they do not repent, if they do not overcome, he would blot their name out. Here's another one to go with that. Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward the goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Yep. So I think that really, if that was the only scripture we had against unconditional eternal security, I think it man, let's throw it out. Okay. Here we go. Um, I've mentioned last time, sometimes I jump in where angels fear to tread. And I will tell you that uh, this has been a blessing to me. It's forced me to really dig in and study things that I hadn't really studied before. I am going to answer this question. Is individual predestination a biblical doctrine? And uh, to be honest with you, this is something that used to stump me as a teenager. And one of the reasons why is because I've told my testimony in here before. But um, the fact that as a teenager, I didn't really live for God. I, I went to church. Uh, I went through the motions, but I wasn't living for God. And I remember I used to pray in those days and I said, God, did you really create me for destruction? Because I had kind of this concept that I can't help what I am. God made me this way. Uh, and something I want to talk about here today is, uh, yes, I am well aware of the five points of Calvinism. I'm well aware of the three groups, Calvinism, Arminianism, and Molinism. I'm not going to get into all of that stuff because this is Bible 101. This isn't meant to swim in really, really deep waters and get people all tripped up in their mind. Uh, so I'm going to talk to somebody, just, just a random person. Let's just say somebody on the street that brought up the subject of predestination. I'm going to talk to you on here just like I would talk to them. I'm not going to give technical terms. I'm going to stay away from these deep theological terms, but I'm going to just stick to the Bible. What does the Bible have to say? So I want to give you six points about predestination. Number one, God desires for all men to be saved. First Timothy chapter two, verse number four through six. Now we'll point out here that uh, already uh, five points of Calvinism would have problems with this. Okay. First Timothy chapter two and verses four through six, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Because one of the points of Calvinism believes in uh, selective atonement. Uh, in other words, it's only for the elect. It's not for everybody. But scripture clearly teaches differently. Okay, let's go now to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. And if you got your Bible, follow along with me. And you might want to write these scriptures down just in case somebody ever brings this up to you. Second Peter chapter three and verse number nine says this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His atonement is for whosoever will. Let's go back to those popular verses of scripture. John chapter three, verse 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but that the world through him might be saved. Okay, so it's clear salvation is for whosoever will. He provided atonement. He died for everybody. He didn't just die for the elect. He didn't just die for a few. He didn't just die for the church. He died for everybody. His blood is for everyone. And you could uh, talk more about that, but just for the sake of this discussion, I'm going to move forward. Point number two, election and predestination are based upon God's foreknowledge. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 2. 1 Peter 1 and 2. And uh, I want to read this. It's one of my favorite verses of scripture in the entire Bible. I'm going to point something out. I haven't really heard pointed out about this verse before. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 2. Again, Peter's writing into the church. Just to back up, let's go to verse 1 just to catch the context here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now notice what he said here. Elect according to to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God knows everything. He knows what decisions you're going to make. He knows what decisions I'm going to make. He knows what's going to happen in the future. If that's not true, then how do you explain prophecy? God knows what's going to happen before it happens. Uh, the Bible says he calleth those things that shall be as though they were. That's Romans 8 and 29. One thing I do want to point out here quickly is in 1 Peter 1 and 2, it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification. That word sanctification means setting apart, to be made holy, of the Spirit unto obedience. New King James Version translates this for obedience. The purpose for God giving somebody the Holy Ghost is to call them unto obedience. So I think that goes back to something we mentioned earlier. Okay, so his. Uh, let's also, uh, excuse me, I, I quoted something wrong here just a minute ago. Let's go to Romans 8 and 29. We need to read this. Um, he called it those things that shall be as though they were is actually a different reference. I apologize. Romans 8, 29. Uh, let's turn there quickly. Romans 8, 29 says this. For whom he did foreknow. Notice that term there. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. There it is again. So we already read elect according to the foreknowledge through sanctification of the spirit unto obedience. So here it is for whom he did foreknow. He also did predestine, predestinate to be conformed. This is the purpose to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So that's point number two. Now, just so you're keeping track, point one was God desires for all men to be saved. Point two, election and predestination are based upon God's foreknowledge. And I'll just stop here long enough to say, be careful about if, if somebody starts telling you about predestination. Oh, that's not biblical. Well, predestination is biblical. It's a biblical word. You got to understand what it means, though. That's what we're talking about. Point number three, uh, predestination, uh, which means to determine salvation beforehand, is for the church, not individuals. Okay, now... Um, we're going to get into breaking down Romans chapter 9 as a theme, but let me just kind of give you, before we get there, a, a brief synopsis of what we're going to talk about. Romans chapter 9, if you look at the context of the book of Romans, he's actually talking about the grafting in of the Gentiles into the body of Christ, and he's talking about the cutting off of the Jews, the blinding of their eyes because they've rejected the truth. And uh, so what he's talking about in Romans chapter number 9 is uh, specifically talking about the corporate body, the church. The church is predestined, not individuals. Okay, point number four. You have the ability to harden your own heart. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. Let's go there quickly. And I'm going to tie all these things together when we actually get into this. But Hebrews chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. 
Now, you may not think this is important. This is a very important point, uh, because if God predestines you to be hard, how would you have the ability to harden your own heart? Scripture is very clear that you have the ability to harden your own heart. Hebrews chapter three, verses 13 through 15 says this, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened, watch this, through the deceitfulness of sin, not because God made you hard, but you're hardened, how? Through the deceitfulness of sin, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast into the end. What is that? Uh, you Going back to what you talked about, once saved, always yeah. says, he says, if we hold uh, the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the yeah. end. Verse 15, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. You have the ability to harden your own heart. Another reference, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, says this, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Okay, so uh, somebody may say, what about Romans chapter 9, verses 17 through 18? Well, the example that Paul gives here, and we'll get more in depth into this later, but the example he gives is Pharaoh. And the Bible talks about, he said, for this purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my glory. Uh, but what Scripture says is at times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Exodus 7, 22 through 23, uh, Exodus 8, 15, Exodus 8, 32. And at times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 4, 21, 7 and 3 uh, and 13, 9 and 12. And there's other references there. Uh, so the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It also says God hardened his heart. Pharaoh made the decision to be hard, and God took his heart and used it for his purposes. I like what one man said. He said, you're going to glorify God in one way or the other. It's your choice which way you're going to glorify him. Yeah. So Pharaoh chose the wrong path, so God still used him for his glory. Okay, point number five. God does not predestine you to be saved or lost. In fact, Romans 9 teaches God is patient with vessels of wrath. Let's read that. Romans chapter 9, verses 21 through 22. Now, again, somebody might be listening to this. Say, well, that's not really an important point, but I'm going to tell you why it's important here in just a minute. Romans chapter 9, verses 21 through 22 says this, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Now, let me ask you a question. If God predestines you to be lost, why would he have to endure with much long-suffering your disobedience? What would be the point? If God is sovereign overall and just overall, so that gives him the justification to create a vessel only unto wrath and to appoint them to destruction beforehand, why would he have to endure with much long-suffering your disobedience? That doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, so look at what it's saying. Consider the story of the potter in Jeremiah, chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. Now, if this is the only response you give to a Calvinist or somebody that believes in, in Calvinism, uh, even if they don't necessarily embrace all the five points, give them this story, because this is very hard to answer from their perspective. Let's go to Jeremiah, chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. I want to catch the context and read this here. And I'm going to try to do this as quick as possible, guys. I'm sorry. This is one of those where I knew I, I need some time to build a foundation here. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. So now we remember we just read about hath not the potter power of the clay. 
Okay, so arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it, same lump of clay, again unto another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then, watch this, this is what I want you to notice. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. To me, honestly, this, this portion of Scripture in and of itself would completely demolish the doctrine of saying somebody's predestined ahead of time because God said, even if I've told somebody, you're going to be destroyed. Use Nineveh as an example. God spoke to Jonah and he said, go preach in Nineveh. Jonah goes in and he preaches 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And I like what one man said. He said, you know what Jonah was so mad about? God turned him into a false prophet. Because he said 40 days, you're going to be, he didn't say if you repent. They said, but perhaps if we repent, maybe God will show us mercy. They had no promise. But when they repented, God turned from his wrath, did not fulfill that prophetic word, which was inspired of God. So uh, I think scripture is very clear on, on this point. Now, uh, somebody might say, what about Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 13? Let's, let's go there real quick. Romans 9, 11 through 13. And uh, we'll turn here quickly. By the way, Romans chapter 9 is probably one of the favorite portions of Scripture that uh, they use. And, and, you know, rightfully so. I can understand how somebody could read that and get confused. Totally. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 11 through 13 says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So they look at this and they say, look, before they were ever born, God said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. But what they fail to mention is where this is a quotation from. It's in Malachi chapter one, verses two and three, written long mm -hmm. after the fact. Right. So God, long after the fact, says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He didn't say that before they were born. Uh, secondly, God has foreknowledge, and he can call those things that shall be as though they were. This is that scripture reference, Romans 4, 17, Acts 2, 23. That is how he could state beforehand, the elder shall serve the younger. It didn't mean that I have predestined this person to, to be this certain way. He saw beforehand what was going to happen, just like prophecy. Just like he could prophesy about the birth of Jesus Christ, hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years before Christ could be born. This is how he could also speak on this wise and say the elder shall serve the younger. That does not necessarily mean that God predestined them ahead of time to be saved or lost or this nation or whatever. It meant God, uh, according to his foreknowledge, could speak these words. Okay, so uh, point number six. Scripture teaches that God is slow to anger. Now, this is a very important point, I think. Okay, Jonah chapter four and verse two, I just mentioned it. But Jonah said, you know, why I didn't want to go, God. It's because I knew you were God slow to anger. Okay, Romans 9, 22. Let's read that. Romans chapter nine, verse number 22 here. It says, what if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much 
long suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Now, let me ask you this question. It says God is slow to anger. He endures with much long suffering, the, the vessels of wrath. Okay. If God predestined, whether you'll be saved or lost, how is it that he's slow to anger? How can you reconcile those two? Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, he's already ang- I mean, it, to, to teach that you're basically he predestined you before you were ever born to be lost. How is that slow to anger? It's not. OK. Uh, furthermore, why would God have to harden a vessel that he had already created to be hard? Something else to think about. Yeah. OK, a proper understanding of Romans nine will assist us in understanding the mind of God. Now, this I'm going to do this as quick as possible, but we're just going to walk through Romans nine. So maybe follow along in your Bible here. And hopefully this is a blessing. I understand sometimes we do these things and it goes on a while, but uh, hopefully it's a blessing. If you have to listen to it in snippets, do that. But uh, I would suggest take some notes. This is a blessing to me. Hopefully this will be a blessing to everybody out there. Um, Okay, so let's walk throughout this. God chose Israel to be his people. Uh, The promise was to Abraham, but it was contingent upon obedience. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Let's go and read that quickly. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is kind of prerequisite before we get into Romans 9. I'm just kind of giving you the gist of this here. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of that country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. If you will do this thing, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We could also walk back to where it's the covenant of circumcision. He said, if that man child is not circumcised, he will be cut off. So even if Abraham hadn't circumcised himself, guess what? He would have been cut off. God said, if it was, it was contingent upon his obedience. Okay. So uh, yet it, it could be argued if God has foreknowledge, why did he choose uh, a nation that he knew would ultimately reject him? This is the point of Romans chapter nine. So let's get into it. Let's go to Romans chapter nine, verses one through five. Let me get back here quickly. Romans nine, verses one through five. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is uh, over, uh, excuse me, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Okay, uh, just because God chose Abraham and promised to bless his seed does not mean that all of his children were of the promise. Now let's look at verses 6 through 9. Not as through the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At that time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Okay, so uh, within these scriptures, we find a principle. Abraham's seed was predestined to be a blessing, but not all of his children would be saved. Look at Romans, uh, excuse me, look at Hebrews chapter three, verse number seven. Trying to give you a lot of scripture here. Hebrews chapter three and verse seven says this. 
wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice, harden, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Let me give you another illustration. First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Now remember, what you might say, what, what are you talking about? The point is that even though these are children of promise and they're of the seed of Abraham, his seed is predestined. He said, through you all, through your seed, all the nations of the world will be, will be blessed. But that didn't mean automatically that everybody in that line was saved. Right. Okay. First Corinthians chapter 10, uh, let's read uh, verses 1 through 5. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant, not that how, excuse me, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ but with many of them God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness and I think that that'll suffice so basically the point there is uh, that even though they're children of promise not all of them are saved okay so it was predestined that Israel would enter the promised land but not all entered Okay, let's go back to Romans 9. Let's read verses 11 through 13. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Uh, I've already mentioned God through his foreknowledge spoke in prophecy before the children had done good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand. You, you can compare this with 1 Peter 1 and 2. We've already read it. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Jacob was elected based upon God's foreknowledge. Then notice something else. It said, not of works. Well, Ephesians 2, 8 and, and 8 through 10, tie that in. For by grace you save through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Nothing you do will save you. It's God's grace that saves you. Okay, so uh, we are saved only by God's grace, not by works. Now let's go to verses 14 uh, through 18 here. It says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Uh, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my, my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Okay, so if, if God has foreknowledge, uh, why would he elect Jacob's seed? knowing that they would rebel. This is the purpose of the passage. This is what he's talking about. Why would he elect somebody he knows would ultimately fail? Okay, so uh, does this mean that he is unrighteous? Paul answers his question, God forbid. You've got to understand what he's talking about in, in the context of the portions of Scripture. Okay, even though Israel turned away from God, God still used it to glorify his name. Look at verse 17, talking about where he raised Pharaoh up, that my name might be glorified. Okay, verse 19 says this, Thou wilt then say uh, unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? The question is, how can God be just when no one can resist or fight against his will? Let me just stop and say that God's ways are far above our ways. Isaiah 55 and 9, as high as the heavens are above the earth, his, so are his ways above our ways, his thoughts above our thoughts. Uh, and his ways might seem at times that he is more merciful with some than with others. You guys could probably testify. Maybe you see two 
backsliders that left church and one seems to get opportunity after opportunity. The other one died in a car wreck the night after they left the church. And you you might say, well, how is God just? Okay. So they're looking at this and and they say, how can God elect Israel and yet, and know that they're going to be cut off? How is this just? Okay. But notice what Paul says. He answers it with this. And I thought this was so awesome today when I saw this, let's read uh, Romans nine and 20. Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel into honor and another unto dishonor? So Paul answered this question with firstly, the truth. The truth is God is sovereign. Mm-hmm. Right. Don't question him. God's sovereign. And uh, that's the first question. That's the first answer that he gives. Then he answers with a possibility. Notice what he says here. What if? So he's, let's consider this. We don't understand the mind of God, but let's just go ahead and consider and try to look at it from his perspective. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? So he's asking that question, what if? God is all-knowing. He has all the facts and we don't. Okay, so uh, again, it's like I've I've used the story before and I'm not going to do it just for the sake of time, but... uh, you're talking about the, the potter that was brought to my wife's school. And uh, when, you know, he felt that nobody else could feel the flaw. And basically the point I brought out about that is nobody knows the clay like the potter. God knows how somebody's going to respond. God knows their tendencies. God knows their strengths. He knows their weaknesses. So he may not deal with one lump of clay like he deals with another lump of clay. This one might be more, uh, uh, might have more tendency to become hard. Whereas this one's soft and pliable and he can do more with it. It's like Job. Why would he put Job through so much suffering? Not all of us have gone through Job's suffering because he knew how Job would respond with his foreknowledge. He knew the clay. The potter knows the clay. Okay. So also notice the plural in verse 23. He says the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Okay. Let's go to verse 24 through 33. And I'm almost done. This is my last page, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, Romans 9, 24 through 33 says this, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, as he saith also in Osi, Isaiah, I will call them my people, which were not my people and her beloved, which was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you're not my people. There shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also cried concerning Israel, Though the number, excuse me, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Uh, for he shall finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us the seed, we had been as Sodom and had been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which follow not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith. This is the key to the whole passage, really. They sought it not by faith, but as it were the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Verses 30 through 32, Israel was rejected because they sought righteousness by the law. But then uh, see uh, Romans 10, 1 through 3, real quick. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Uh, so they rejected faith in Christ and they sought to become righteous by the law. But the Gentiles received uh, faith and they believed in Christ 
And if you look at Acts 13, 46, God says uh, through the Apostle Paul, I'm turning away from the Jews and I'm going to the Gentiles. Why? Because the Jews rejected God's new plan. They wanted to go by the law. They wanted to keep doing what they've always done. But the Gentiles accepted this by faith. God will one day turn back to the Jews. The, the book of Romans chapter 11, uh, verses 20 through 5 through 26, and I'll close with this, says this, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So really, if you look at it in the grand scheme of things, God chose Israel Yes, he knew that they'd be cut off one day, but he's going to turn back to them one day too. Uh, so, you know, God is sovereign. And and really, let me just say this quickly, and, and, and I'm so sorry, guys, I took so long on this point, but I think it's an important point. Uh, I'll just say this, that when it comes to predestination, I think it's kind of us dabbling where we ought not to dabble. Because uh, really, even if God predestines vessels, how are we to know? And God's sovereign. Uh, so you'd leave that in the hands of God. Really, Paul summed up the whole argument where he said, who are you to reply against God? Who are we to argue with God? Yes. I, I used that one time because I had a guy at the prison ask me. He said, uh, how can you justify God? Uh, did you, you probably met the guy I'm talking about. It's, uh, anyways, very learned guy. He's always reading books. Oh, yeah. But he said, how can you justify a God that allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed in 70 AD, which included children? Those children didn't make a decision. They didn't make any choice on their own. They didn't sin. Uh, why, why did God judge them for rejecting Christ? Because you said it was because of the rejection of Christ, which it was. Look yeah, it up. Right. Uh, but how did he allow you know, children and, and all of that and women and all of these people to die that had nothing to do with rejecting Christ? And my response to him was, I said, you're dabbling where you ought not to dabble. I said, God is just. And I took him to that verse of Scripture. He said, who are you to reply against God? It's egotistical for us to say, God, you did this wrong. Right. We don't have, he's got an eternal perspective. He sees everything from eternity. We only see the temporal. So it's kind of like, you know, if you don't have all the facts of the case, you can't judge it right. Have you ever heard pastor say, um, in reference to Romans 2 and 11, where God is no respecter of persons? He says, that is true. God is no respecter of persons, but he is a respecter of attitude. That's good, yeah. And your, your attitude determines how God deals with you. Yes. And then also coming thinking along the lines of that, uh, you can go to uh, Matthew 23, 37, Old Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem. Yes. Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring wanted you in like, like gather you, 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 you in, together. but you would not. Mm -hmm. But you would not. So, you know, therefore, there's the attitude coming. And then another thing, too, you know, I like to tread where we really don't belong. But when, when, you, when you think about it and go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, why evangelize? Why 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 spread the gospel if so? was already destined to heaven or hell. And I think the argument that would come uh, from their point of view would be, well, we don't know which ones are going to be saved and lost, so we have to reach everybody and, and hope it reaches the elect. Uh, and also, something else is kind of interesting. There's some of them that embrace the five points of Calvinism that don't know if they they are saved or lost, because what they're saying is, if you look at once saved, always saved. This is their response. Uh, well, if somebody, quote unquote, falls away and they go into false doctrine, well, they probably didn't truly believe in the first place. I've heard that. Yeah. And so uh, they'll, they'll say, well, maybe they weren't true believers and God knew that they were never really a true believer anyway. So that's how they would argue with a lot of the scriptures we brought up here today. Uh, but I think that's just, you know, that's that's reaching for straws there. Did you have anything to add to that before we move on? Well, I'm, I'm kind of a bottom, bottom line kind of guy. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's predestined that God's going to have a church. Jesus said, 
I'm, I'm going to build a church. Yes. It's predestined there's going to be a church. It's up to us individually to choose to be in that church. Yes. And it, it did say Jesus Christ is the firstborn of every creature. And it actually says uh, in Christ, God, I mean, obviously Christ is, uh, according to his foreknowledge, he was he is the firstborn. He's the first of the church. And in him is how we're predestined once you join his body. But it's, I like to put it this way. Does that mean that if you're in the body of Christ, you can't jump off? No, it's like getting on a ship. You can jump ship. As long as you stay on the ship, you're safe. Yes. All right. Uh, guys, I'm sorry I took so long on that. Maybe we can kind of, uh, I know this next one's a, a good one too. So I want to definitely give you this. Uh, Brother Ross, is Jesus God or a God based on John 1 and 1? Okay, we, we could spend a few weeks on this, but I'm going to spend about, I'm going to spend a few minutes on this. A few minutes, okay? Now, if you've listened to any of these lessons and you've listened to any of these discussions, how many times have we brought up John chapter 1, verse 1? Well, here we are again. Here we are yes. again. And this time we're going to deal with a portion of this scripture that uh, some translations, primarily the New World Translation, with this, which is a Jehovah Witness translation. If you ever see one of those or you talk to Jehovah Witness, they will bring up John 1 and 1. And they will typically read it like this. I don't have the word for word. I've, I've got one of those. I didn't bring it with me. But basically, when you get to the latter part of John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. And the word was a God. And they have uh, the word God, and, and uh, it's not capital G. It's a lowercase g. And so <clears throat> now, if you're familiar with the Jehovah Witness doctrine at all they they changed that when they translated that because they don't believe that jesus is god and uh, and so when i begin to look at this and i've had a lot of discussions with Jehovah's witnesses even concerning this particular verse of scripture and uh and like like brother mills when he was talking about all the all the deep things we could go into about certain subject we we could go into the we could break this verse of scripture down word word for word in the Greek. We could talk about Greek uh, definite, indefinite pronouns and all of that and how, how different how different Greek scholars look at all that. But again, what does the Bible say? And so when I look at this, <clears throat> I think sometimes when we fo focus on one verse of scripture like that, it's almost like looking at a, at a painting in the Mona Lisa or any beautiful painting through a straw. <laughs> look at a painting through a straw and you, what, what do you see? Okay. I, I see this blotch of, of, so, so before I talk about John one and one, let's talk about the whole book of John here for a minute. It was written by the apostle John who walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for three plus years. Yeah. This particular book was the last of the four gospels that was written by the way. And it was written late in the first century. It was written to most of the believers in Asia minor and throughout the then known Mediterranean world, <clears throat> throughout the book of John, you'll see a very, a very high Christology uh, doctrines that are taught through the book of John. In John, we learn that Jesus is the Messiah. We learn that he is the Christ. We read in the book of John about Jesus being the Lamb of God and the Son of God, the King of Israel. He is he's uh, God. He's the Creator. He's Jehovah, the Old Testament, come in flesh. John chapter one. Uh, verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so we also read that uh, Jesus is the I am and et cetera, et cetera. All through the book of John, we have this, this Christology doctrine about who, 
who Jesus Christ is and on and on we could go. Now, no, nowhere in the book of John that is Jesus presented as a separate person from God. And uh, that <clears throat> there is a doctrine that teaches that, but that, that came well after the New Testament was written. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and my father are one. John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the father. He didn't say he that has seen me has seen a God. Mm -hmm. Right. To say a God suggests another God. Another God. Right. Demigod. Or, or a lesser God. Right. And so nowhere in Scripture as a whole is that doctrine presented. And so I wanted to look at the broad picture of things before we focus on, and the word was, a God. Well, again, Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that, that, uh, that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. So that particular verse of Scripture was changed to read a God. Now, in all fairness, there are some other translations that say that. Um, However, there are over 100 English translations of the New Testament over a 700-year period, as early as 1300 A.D. All those translate John 1 and 1 as the Word was God. And in fact, uh, somebody, can, somebody can research it, call me out on it if you want to. I could find no translations that use, use the term and the Word was a God, except uh, translations that started in, in the 1800s. I couldn't find no translations before that time that said, use the term a God. And so, uh, like I said, I was going to be short on this. I do want to make a, make a, one more point with this. If, if there is only one true living God, is, and Jesus is a God, then is Jesus a true God or a false God? I've asked Jehovah Witnesses that before, and then they go into their explanations that really is not an ex exclamation. But let's look at in the book of John, also in John chapter 20. Yes. And I'll finish up with this. John chapter 20. Oh, let's look at verse, verse 28. Uh, Jesus has died on the cross. He has resurrected. He has shown himself to uh, many of the disciples. Uh, Thomas wasn't around. Um, and, and Thomas there in John chapter 20, he said, well, he said, except I, I shall see in this, in his hands, the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand in his side. I will not believe. Wow. That's a bold statement to make. Well, <clears throat> after eight days, the Bible says in John chapter 20, verse 26, the disciples were together there. And this time Thomas was with him. The Bible says, then came Jesus, the doors being shut stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. I, I don't know about you, but I'd be a little startled. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> and the Bible says in this particular case, guess who spoke up first? Well, Jesus goes on to say, let me finish this. Thomas, reach hither thy finger, behold my hands, reach hither thy hand and thrust it in my side and be not faithless, but believe in me. John chapter 20, verse 28. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and a God. No. Oops, I'm sorry. I read that wrong. Yeah. It does not say my Lord and a God. It says my Lord and my God. I have Jehovah Witnesses tell me, though, that was just an exclamation that Thomas was just so surprised about seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead. 
not not true, my, my, my friends, because Thomas was a Jew. And if any Jew would use terminology like that, he would be he would be taking the Lord's name in vain. Correct. And they were taught That's from correct. a very early age. You right. don't take the Lord's name right. in vain. Thomas is not going to blurt out in front of Jesus of a, 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 a description like that. Any any anybody just plain Bible reading, reading this knows that Thomas is looking at Jesus Christ and calling him his Lord and his God. He's not calling him a God. I'll add to this. There's a reason why Jehovah's Witnesses keep having to update their translations. Yes, because there's more and more scriptures that they're finding out that uh, teach that Jesus is God. So they have to change them. Another clear indication is in John chapter uh, 8 and verse number 58. It says, Jesus saith, said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego, I me, I believe in the Greek, if I'm quoting that right. Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now the Jehovah's Witness would say, well, you know, you're misunderstanding what I am means there. No, I'm not. The Jews understood what he meant. Absolutely. He's claiming to be God. That's why they picked up stones. If that's not what he meant, why did they pick up stones to stone him? Uh, because he was referring back to how God introduced himself in the burning bush, where he said, I am, uh, I am that I am. So clearly he's claiming to be God there. Okay, uh, I'm going to answer this one in about two seconds. <laughs> um, this is a good question because in the Bible 101 series, I've talked about the importance of blood. And how that blood was always required as a sin offering. Uh, well, I heard a Jew use this argument. And honestly, the first time I heard it, I thought, ooh, that's, uh, that'll be interesting. I'm going to have to do some research and study on that. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, let's read it. says, But if he be not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he that sinned shall bring for his offering the tenth part of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil upon it, neither shall he put any frankincense thereon, for it is a sin offering. Then shall he bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it, even a memorial thereof, and burn it on the altar, according to the offerings made by fire unto the Lord. It is a sin offering. So what they'd say is, well, clearly a blood sacrifice wasn't always required for sin. Uh, however, I, I, I did a little bit of research on it. I, it didn't take very long. And uh, I found this in a commentary, and I thought this was good. Really, I just wanted to share this, because just in case somebody might get this argument. It says, it may be objected that this was not a blood sacrifice, and therefore conclude that God did not require a blood sacrifice for sin in every case. Yet, the priest was to take the flour and offer it up in smoke with the offerings of the Lord. Verse 12, thereby uniting the flour to previous animal sacrifices. Thus, the grain offering became part of the blood offering. Hence, although not everyone could afford a peace offering, everyone could afford a sin offering. I thought that was good. Good. All right, uh, Brother Ross, will only 144,000 be saved? Um, um, no. <laughs> no said. <laughs> but... I could have done that with Ross. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let me. He's just going to make this easy. <laughs> I, I was waiting for you to go to Eric on something. Oh, so, you're okay. You're okay. I, give me two minutes on this one. Okay. While while he's doing that, um, and you may answer it this way, but you mind if I throw a little something out there? No. Uh, a guy asked me one time, he said, uh, well, only 144,000 be saved. He asked me just that way. And what I said was, have you ever looked at uh, the scripture that talks about 144,000. He said, well, yeah. And I said, in the book of Revelation, they're all Jews, very clearly. 
It says from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000, from the tribe of Levi, 12,000. Is this uh, where you're going with it? Yes, yes. Okay, you go ahead. Then. Okay, and and let me more specifically word the qu uh, question this way. Will only 144,000 go to heaven? Yeah, that's... Yeah, and, exactly. uh, and again, this is another Jehovah Witness kind of thing, and I, I'm not aware of any other groups so-called religious groups that, that yeah. talk about this, like the Jehovah Witnesses. I think you're there. right, yes. And so, but uh, if you're out there, out and about, and, and they knock on your door, you run into them, they're going to bring bring this up at some point. Well, only 144,000 go to heaven. Uh, this discussion is not going to deal with who specifically the 144,000 are, though the Bible specifically does say, but there are some symbolic things there that some people want to get into, but I'm, I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to answer the question, will only 144,000 go to heaven? No, there's only two places that 144,000 are mentioned. It is in the book of Revelation. Re book of Revelation chapter 7 is the first place you read about them. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, uh, verse 3, hurt not the earth, the angel says, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Verse 4, I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they and there were sealed in hundred and forty and four thousand. And he says, of all the tribes of the children of Israel, Brother Mills started into it, the tribe of Judah, twelve thousand, Reuben, twelve thousand, Acer, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, twelve of them, Levi, Zebulon, Joseph, Benjamin, twelve times twelve thousand is one hundred and forty-four thousand. Okay, so very plainly, the Bible says 144,000 are of all the tribes of the children of Israel. One more time in, in the book of Revelation chapter 14, he mentions the, the 144,000 one more time. Uh, 14 verse 1, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the mount and with him 144,000. And we read in chapter 7 who the 144,000 are. And... Um, Verse three, no, no man to learn a song at the 144,000, which were redeemed from there. So these, these two verses of scripture, the Jehovah Witnesses have made a complete doctrine that only 144,000 are going to go to heaven. What about all the other Jehovah Witnesses? Well, they're going to be here on a, on a paradise on earth. And then the 144,000 of them will be, now they use terms like uh, the little flock, uh, the anointed, those that are part of the little flock uh, and, and the anointed are the ones going to going to heaven. Those are the uh, the great crowd. They use that terminology are the ones that will be on earth. So they make make this separation. <clears throat> and that's their doctrine. As a matter of fact, uh, if you look up Jehovah Witnesses history in 1935, the Jehovah Witness doctrine said the 144,000 were already sealed. They were locked in. And from 1935 on, everybody else would just be well, here on earth. Well, guess what? As Jehovah Witnesses often do, they changed that and changed it <laughs> and changed it and changed it. They still just believe in the 144,000, but they still believe that there's more people that can be added to that 144,000. Interesting. Well, Revelation chapter 7 plainly says the 144,000 are all the tribes of the children of Israel. But, but get this. But get, get this. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. He just talked about the 144,000. Then he says, after this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude. Wait, no, no man can number. Where from? All nations, kindreds, people, tongues, 
stood before the throne and before the lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they begin to worship God there. So wait, it's not just 144,000. We see a great multitude. And it's so big that we can't even number this group. Mm -hmm. And it's all kindred. It's all nations. So is there just 144,000 saved? I'm not seeing that here. How about Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11? How about Revelation chapter 5 verse 11? It says, and I, be, and I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, the beasts and the elders and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. I, I didn't know how much that was. I had to get a calculator. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. And this is in heaven, okay? And then he says thousands of thousands. I don't know how much that is. It's more than 144,000. Right. And one more verse of scripture to put the cheese on the cracker. Matthew chapter 7. And, and by the way, <clears throat> I, I, I've seen uh, Jehovah. And by the way, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, I've asked them, so, well, how do you know if you're in the 144,000? You just know you got this special feeling that comes upon you, and you, and you can declare that I'm part of the 144,000. It never... sounds like the Mormon burning of the bosom. Yeah, and they, similar. and they call themselves the anointed. And Jehovah Witnesses do communion once a year on Easter, and only the anointed, the 144,000, they get to partake in the communion. Nobody else, they just have to pass it on. Nobody partakes of the communion. Jehovah Witnesses, I didn't know if you knew that or not, but that's. Yeah. That's interesting. That's that's not biblical either, by the way. How about and and think of the fact that I and I've I've heard of people that used to be in Jehovah Witnesses came out of it. One particular story about a mother and a daughter. Uh, the, I think it was the mothers felt like she was one hundred forty-four thousand, and the daughter's like, "Well, mom, then we'll be separated. We won't be together." And the mother was like, she was struggling with this concept of being separated and. And uh, so they're not Jehovah's Witness anymore. But Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, are only 144,000 going to be in heaven? Jesus said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, I think we read this earlier, mm -hmm. shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, who will? 144,000? No. Oh, that's good. He that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, is just 144,000 going to do the, <laughs> do the will of God? No. Not not just 144,000, but anybody that wants to do the will of, <clears throat> will of God will get to go to heaven and obey the plan of salvation. I don't know if y'all notice this, but kind of like it's been a continual theme all through the night of the same thing we've, we've been mm -hmm. dealing with over and over. Yeah. Okay. Um, Brother Eric, I'm going to basically sit back and pitch to you about three of these and and uh, and uh, just get ready, I guess. Okay. All right, so we're, we're going to, Brother Ross, we're going to sit back and pitch him to Eric and watch him knock it out of the park okay, here. Sit, go. <laughs> uh, question number 10, uh, if God already knows our heart, why should we pray? I think that's a good question. Yes, it is. And I did devote a little more, probably a little bit more time into this one. I did any of the others, but I will still try to go briefly. Um, why should we pray? Um, I wrote down 10 different reasons, and I'll get into some scriptures and stuff in a minute, but prayer can succeed where other means failed. But for true Christians, prayer should not be the last resort, but the first response. So in other words, when a lot of times when other things have failed and you're kind of at your wits end and well, it's, it's a response that prayer, prayer brings you through when nothing else seems to work. Um, number two, obedience. God's word calls us to prayer. Matthew 5, 44, 
pray for them that persecute you. Matthew 6, 5 through 6. When you pray, pray thou in a closet. Uh, that could be interpreted to your secret place. Uh, Matthew 6 and 9. Uh, God gives us the example, uh, teaches us about the Lord's Prayer. Romans 12 and 12, be instant in prayer. Um, Ephesians 6, 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplications with thanksgiving, let your request be known unto God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. God calls us to pray. We must be obedient. Uh, number three, Jesus prayed regularly. And I will get into this in the future here. We're going to do examples of Jesus, and I'll get into some of that and that. But why did Jesus pray? He told us himself in the Garden of Gethsemane that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But also we feel, I feel that Jesus prayed as an example that we can learn from him. Matthew 14, 23, Jesus went into the mountain to pray. Matthew 26, 36, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 16, 1 through 5, Jesus departed early in the morning to pray. Luke 5, 16, Jesus often went to a lonely place to pray. Luke 6 and 12, Jesus spent the night praying. Luke 18 and 1, uh, he told a parable that they should pray and not faint. Uh, so therefore, we understand that God was a big advocate for praying, and God did pray. Jesus had prayed many times. Uh, number four, prayer is how we communicate with God. Prayer allows us to worship and to praise God, and many times by faith for victory or for answers we have yet to receive. It allows us to offer confession for our sins and open up deep repentance. It's a two-way uh, communication. Second uh, Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Isaiah 40.31, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I, I included that in there because this we understand that there's a lot of benefits in, in talking to God. So it's a it's a two-way deal here. You pray and you talk to God and God answers and God talks back in, in many ways. And uh, so that's why I included that there. And I'm also going to read from Hebrews 4, 15, uh, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. If you got your Bibles, you can go with me there. I'll give you time to find it there. Uh, Hebrews 4. Um, 15 and 16 says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the filling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. It's more than just asking God, but it's building a relationship with him. <clears throat> Prayer allows us to participate. I'm sorry, ver uh, this would be number five. Point number five. Prayer allows us to participate in God's work. Prayer is by, is the means God has ordained for something to happen. Prayer can clear obstacles out of the way in order for God to work. Not that God can't work without prayers, but that he has established prayer as part of his plan for accomplishing his will in the world. It's a partnership with God. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities that we know not what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings, that cannot be uttered. Uh, number six, prayer gives us power over evil, over the devil, over evil works. Matthew 26, 41. Watch ye therefore and pray, lest ye enter not into temptation. Uh, number seven, prayer strengthens our bond between our brothers, our sisters, between fellow, uh, fellow Christians. 
uh, we often pray together. Uh, Bible talks about a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Uh, and it's often been said to a quote here, the saying has often been said, a family that prays together stays together. Uh, number eight, answered prayer is a potential witness. So if you pray and God answers mm -hmm. a prayer, you can use that as a witnessing sure. tool. Uh, if and when your prayer is answered, it serves as a testimony of the goodness of God. Prayer keeps us humble, and we are reminded that we are not in control. God is. Um, Matthew 18 and 4 says, Whosoever shall humble himself as this little child, the same as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Number 10, prayer is always available. Romans 8, um, 38 through 39. God loves us and always nigh to hear us. Our, our And we know that here, the, those of us that are sitting here heard pastor preach here lately that uh, if God, if you can pray it, God can hear it. And yes. so that's why we should pray because it does a lot more than just, uh, well, God, you know my heart, but we can actually build a relationship and actually build a Christian walk. That's what it's all about is, is uh, living for God to the best of our ability. And that's what prayer helps us with. Excellent. Very good. Very good. Is tithing biblical? Is tithing biblical? Well, I'm going to do like Brother Ross. Yes. No, <laughs> no uh, the tithing is biblical. And I'm going to uh, give me just a second to get there. Oh, you're um, right. <clears throat> yeah, I think this is uh, an important question. But I, I mean, I could address it maybe a little bit more like you would hear it on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Is it biblical in New Testament era? Mm -hmm. And uh only thing I'm, I'm going to say about this, if you've got your stuff together, do you have your stuff together now? You're good. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I'll say is this. Really, if you look at the principle in the New Testament, it's to give everything. Mm -hmm. They gave all. Mm -hmm. So uh, actually, the New Testament era requires more of us. Mm -hmm. And the, the principle was not just 10% in the New Testament era. It was it was give as much as you can. Right. Go ahead. Bro. And, and they're taking from what you just said there. We, we talked about the. The widow's might that Jesus said because she had gave all yes. that she was that it was important. But uh, I actually took it from the perspective of the whole Bible, not just the New Testament. Yeah. But I looked up some statistics and astounding uh, and astoundingly found out that fewer than one quarter of any church congregation tithe. And on average, Christians give around two to three percent of their income to the church. Mm. Two and three percent is not tithe. The word tithe actually means tenth. Ten. Mm -hmm. Offering, on the other hand, is free will given outside or addition to tithing. Both are important and play a part in first obedience to God and his principles written in the word of God, but also for the blessings of God. Um, it's a shame it's so readily overlooked because there are so many verses referencing and implying tithing. Most of these passages are dismissed by the religious groups as not for us today, as so many other <laughs> Doctrinal truths are. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's the easy way out. Is that's not for us today. Yeah. Um, so let's read Malachi, uh, Malachi three um, eight through twelve, and I'm sure you knew I was going to go there. Um, three eight through twelve. But will a man rob God? Ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and in offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that they may be met in my house, to prove that they may meet in my house, to prove me. Now herewith saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be no room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast 
her fruit before the time of the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all the nations shall call you blessed, and you shall be delightsome in the land, saith the Lord of hosts. So we see here that we find out God implies here or tells us that if we do not pay our tithes and offerings, that we are robbing God. And will a man rob God? It's pretty simple as that. Um, do you want to rob God or do you want to be faithful in, in paying your tithes? But also here it tells us there's benefits in paying your tithes. And when you do so, God will uh, pour out blessings that shall not be enough room to receive it. Uh, and then obviously if you don't, the, he will... Uh, there's, there's consequences. And so we need to take a, uh, a ser take serious the, the condemnation of robbing God, but also look at it with such a glorious blessing. Uh, Luke 6 and 38 says, Given it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Um, so many parts of our Christian life is we're taught to be stewards of, of our time, of our efforts, whatever, but obviously of our money. And uh, so there's a lot of things we, we see here. Tithing goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Um, reading Genesis 14, 19, and 20. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Uh, Jacob made a vow saying in Genesis 28, 20 through 22, If God will keep with me and will keep me in his way, that I go, I will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again into my father's house in peace when the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all of that, will I, will you, and of all of that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Uh, Leviticus, or the, the Levites tithe in Numbers 18, 26. Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, when you take from the people of Israel the tithe that have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. And so uh, we, we see here that tithing goes all the way through the, the Old Testament. And then um, you can also see that in Deuteronomy 12, 5 through 6, talks about tithing and offering. Deuteronomy 14, 28, 29 talks about widows and orphans. Um, Amos 4, 14. Four through five, God required more than just regular tithes. Matthew 6, 1 through 4, Jesus talks about giving in secret. Uh, Mark 12, 14, 41, that's what we just talked about, the widow's mind about giving all. Um, Luke 18, 19 through 14 talks about not being proud because, because of your giving. Hebrews 7 and 12, Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. Eight, uh, Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Um, also, I would say too, that uh, Brother Mills was correct in talking about the, the New Testament form was give all. And so, we, you know, we often talk about, you know, Bible talks about giving tithe and offering. Offering is free will. I believe that God honors somebody who free willingly gives of more than just their money and more than just, but of their time, their efforts, their abilities, their talents, and that kind of thing. So it could also be said that, you know, and talking about the example of Jesus Christ, who could have gave more than somebody who gave their life? No greater love, yes. no man than this. Then a man laid down his life for his friends. Really? And going off the record here, because I'm not going to say this as gospel, but I asked Brother Ross tonight, I said, um, when thinking about the examples of Jesus, I asked him, how long did how, how long did Jesus live? 33 years. How long was Jesus's ministry? A little over three years. And so when you look at it that way, Jesus gave, 
his tithing back to his in, in ministry back to the life that this you know the spirit of god allowed him to to live on earth because for 30 years we well it's pretty other than when he's 12 in the temple with the life of jesus is pretty silent up until yeah so so you know then jesus the last three and a half years gave absolutely everything for uh the, the mission that he was coming that's to good preach, so. excellent yeah. uh only thing i'll add to that real quick is a scripture first corinthians chapter 9 verses 7 through 10 says who goeth the war uh, who goeth a warfare any time in his own charges who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof or who feedeth the flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock say I these things as a man or saith the law the same also for it is written in the law of moses thou shalt not muzzle the, the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn Doth God take care for oxen, or saith he altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? Paul here is uh, defending the fact that they, as ministry, obviously could receive uh, uh, something here. And I believe he's talking about tithing uh, because he said, if we sow unto you spiritual things, what is it for us to reap carnal things, carnal money? Um, and so one thing I'll just kind of say, you know, a lot of times what you hear, ain't no man going to get my money mm -hmm. and uh, so on and so forth. But you're, you're missing the principle. It's not really the man receiving it as God. Mm -hmm. And uh, just they understood that in the Old Testament era, you know, and, and they didn't just tithe off the top of their money. They tithed off the top of their fruit, off yes. the increase, yes. everything, That's right. cattle, everything. Right. Um, but I, I will bring out one more point is I believe it goes back all the way to Genesis chapter number one. Uh Actually, Genesis chapter two, God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. So God set the principle aside. Hey, there's these six days. But on the seventh day, that's mine. One out of the seven is his. And then you you look in, uh, you go throughout. You already mentioned it actually predated the law because some people say it's all about the law. Well, that's just for the law. No, it wasn't. It predated the law. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So it predated the law. But then uh it's seen all over the bible they go into conquer the the promised land first city god says don't take any gold that's mine mm -hmm. don't take any garments that's mine first principle right. of first fruits right. uh then you can also look at uh what uh abel offered was accepted what cain offered wasn't accepted we can talk about the fact it's a blood sacrifice but also he brought up his first fruits which was another key in uh, God accepting it. So he brought that, which was off the top, the very best. I think uh, one of the things to mention real quick, and I'm sorry, guys, I know I'm droning on here, but uh, I think we're all tired by this point, by these, we're, we're worn out. We go home like, we're like a wet rag that you kind of just take and squeeze and yeah. I just feel like there's nothing left by the yeah, time these things are done. Uh, but but one thing uh, I, I'll just simply say uh, in, in regards to tithing is uh, if, God, if you give that 10% to God, God will supply your need. He'll take care of you if you give him that part. If you don't, the Bible says you're robbing God and God will rob from you. He'll take, he'll take, because it's all rightfully his. Look, the hundred percent is God's. That's all right. he asks you for is the 10%. Right. Pastor David says it's like putting money in a bag with holes. That's right. Exactly. You know. Exactly. Yep. Okay, guys, we are almost done here. Twelfth uh, question, Brother Ross. Why should the Bible be the precedent for us today? Hasn't there been development since then? <clears throat> Brother Mills, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and praying about this and, and think, studying things and reading things. And um, this is what I come up with. And it, it may or may not be along the lines of what you were thinking, but this is what I got. 
and this this was to me has been a, a tremendous study a tremendous help to me and i hope if i can get it out right it'll be a help to others all major christian organizations all of them i don't know if there's any exceptions all of them know they teach and know that the church was born in acts chapter 2 called the birthday of the church yes. acts chapter 2 that's that's when the church started all Christian, whatever brand you label you want to put put on it, believes that the church started in Acts chapter two. <clears throat> and there there are some very specific doctrines that are very 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 specific doctrines, very specific experiences that are described in Acts chapter two. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The first four verses of Acts chapter 2 gives a very specific experience of God pouring out the Holy Ghost. And the 120 that are gathered there receive it and began to speak in tongues. Well, we see other things in Acts chapter 2. We see people that are observing this are amazed. They're mar they marvel at what what's they see taking place. They call them drunk people. So we see this experience. We see this observation. There, the, man, the man Peter, the apostle Peter, stands up with the other 11 apostles and begins to preach a message on the day of Pentecost. And he preaches, and he preaches, and he preaches Jesus Christ being crucified. And there is a specific plan of salvation that is preached in Acts chapter 2. And I'm taking a little bit of time here. Um, so when you see Acts chapter 2 and all major Christian organizations says, yep, that's the birthday of the church right there. Okay, we see Holy Ghost outpouring, speaking in tongues. We see people acting drunk. We see people being amazed and marveled. We see a man of God preaching. We see people saying, what must we do? We see uh, Peter saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And and uh, and with many other words that he testified and exhorts, saying, save yourself from the sun toward generation. So, so if Acts chapter 2 is the birthday of the church, and it is, mm -hmm. that experience and that message was to be for all time. It didn't start with a specific message and ex a specific experience to be changed next the next year, 100 years, Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. The birthday of the church was Acts chapter 2, and we see very plainly what that experience and what that plan was. Now, um, it is often taught, even in apostolic circles, that the church went through this dark ages. You know, uh, the, the Catholic Church came into being and the Trinity doctrine and there began to be this uh, going away from the truth of Acts chapter two and the book of Acts in, in general. And, uh, and, and even, even in, I mean, you can even read in the Bible that they were dealing with it back then. The Apostle Paul had to rebuke some people that was getting off. And in Revelation, we see the people that was getting, getting out of hand with, with, with doctrine and, and experiences and things. But I did done some research and, and into this, and 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 I've always kind of believed this, and I've always said it, that God has always had people baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost from the day of Pentecost on, and 
And some have said, well, where's all the historical evidence for it? Well, number one, a lot of it was destroyed by the Catholic Church and even Protestant Church later because Catholic Church and the so-called Protestant Church both persecuted and literally killed Jesus' name people and people that believed in one God. And so, but there is enough historical evidence that has survived through all the centuries. There's always been people baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, believed in one God. God has always had a church, and he always, always will have. I want you to consider for a minute Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. What did Jesus say there, Brother Mills? Matthew 16, 18. Uh, I say unto thee also that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, Jesus said, I'm going to build a church, and the gates of hell is not going to prevail against it. He didn't say, I'm going to build a church, and it's going to go into the dark ages, and it's going to be subdued. Jesus said, I'm going to build a church. The true church never died and came back. There's always been a church. There's always been Acts 2.38 believers, promoters, preachers. There's always been a one God doctrine that has been present since day one. Now, early in the, early in the church history, you can read it in the Bible, false doctrine began to enter in. Um, uh, I think it's first, I, in my, my, I did, I think it's First Timothy two nineteen. He says they went out from us because they were not of us. Not of us. They they were dealing with it back then. People began to get strange doctrines, and well, we don't need to really do it that way. We can change this a little bit here. And people have always had this propensity for ritual, for these formalistic type things. And what what do you see in the in the Catholic Church today with with the popes, their their garb and their ritualistic routines and their mass and and all the all the the ritualistic religious routine that they go through. And um, so people in general, carnal people have this propensity for this religious ceremonial type stuff. And so, so, you know, the apostles died, Apostle John at the end of the first century and um, the Catholic church did become established over next century or two, but the Catholic church persecuted one God, Acts 2, 38 believers. They called them heretics, but they were there. They, was, yeah. they would kill me if you want to, but I know there's one God. I know his name's Jesus. And I know that the plan of salvation is repentance, baptism in Jesus' name and being filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, if you believe that, we're going to have to kill you. Go ahead. And, and that, that amazes me that, that someone that's willing to die for this, in many cases, all, all someone has to do is say, okay, I don't believe that anymore. That's really all they have to do and say, okay, I believe your way. And they can live. But when you when you got this, when, when you got it, when you when you got it, like the Bible says, you're willing to die for it. That's right. Yes. You're willing to be persecuted for it. Call me names if you want to. Physically persecute me. And so they developed their own system of religion, their own little teachings and doctrines. Much is said about Martin Luther and his in the early 1500s and these theses, theses he, he nailed to the wall and how he was, they began to protest against the Catholic church. Calvin, you mentioned John Calvin. Uh, you could talk about uh, Zwingli, uh, these original Protestant reformers, they called them. They didn't like the one God people either. These, these so-called religious people that was protesting, becoming, you know, getting back to the Bible. They didn't like one God, Jesus name people either. They killed him. They killed him too. 
Reformation, so-called Reformation Protestant. Well, <clears throat> bound through the ages, these and other reformers, they denounced one God, Jesus' name, believers, more persecution, they put them to death. God's always had a church. Jesus dealt with it with the Jews, Matthew chapter 15. I'll, I'll finish with this. I know we're running out of time. You're okay. Go ahead. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress what? The tradition of elders. Oh, you're. Your disciples, they're, you're transgressing against the tradition of our, our teachings, mm -hmm. uh, the tradition of our elders. For they washed not their hands when they ate bread, verse 3. But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress what? The commandment of God by your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by whosoever thou mightest be profited by it. Okay, verse 6. And, and honoreth not his father or his mother, and he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God. He's not talking about the commandment of men, tradition of men, or tradition of elders. He said the commandment of God is not effect by your tradition. Mm -hmm. That's good. The same could be said uh, even today, though, about rabbis. Uh, I remember... Uh, hearing Dr. Michael Brown, who is a charismatic radio show host, but he's a Jew and very learned, oh, yes. very learned. And uh, he was witnessing to a uh, Orthodox Jew and he pinned him down, proving Jesus was the Messiah. And uh, the guy couldn't answer him. And, and he looked him in the face and he said, do you see the truth? He said, yes, I see it. You see that Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, I do. Then what's stopping you from obeying the truth? He said, I can't because my rabbi told me it's not the truth. And he said, I obey my rabbi. Well, Jesus goes on to say, you hypocrites. What was I, What Isaiah prophesied of you saying? This people draweth nigh to me with their mouth, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But yes. in vain, they do worship me. Yes. Teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. One more verse of scripture. I'll finish. Colossians 2 and 8. We only have two more questions and we are done. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. God's going to have a church. He's got a church. He's always had a church. We just want you guys to be in it with us. That's right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not trying to pick on uh, Catholic people out there. We no, may no, have a no, few that's no. listening, but at the same time, I do want to bring this verse of scripture up. First uh, Timothy four and one. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience here with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats. Now, now who forbids to marry? What group forbids yes. to marry? Yes. Uh, it's just, just, just something to think about. So my voice. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, the last two questions aren't going to take us very long. I think they're they're very simple questions, brother Eric. Is it water in John 3, 5, referring to the natural birth? Well, the answer to that is I think you can look at it and see that um, John 3, 5 is talking about um, baptism and uh, of the natural birth. And we'll read that real quick just to, to, to so we can lay a groundwork here what we're talking about. Jesus answered, uh, let's go to verse number three. 
um, John 3 and 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man is born again. Emphasis on that word again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus had a good idea here. He thought, man, I could go back and be born again, all over again. I could re rewrite a lot of wrongs. I could fix a lot of problems in my life, uh, a lot of scars. But Jesus, uh, you know, can I enter a second time to my mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say, except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. And again, he uses it again. I understand that and where this kind of gets maybe confusing is where he uses that in verse number five. He doesn't say man is born again of water and of spirit. Uh, so therefore, some people will take that he's actually talking the water birth being that of the natural birth. But we find out that um, baptism is actually our yeah, being born again consists of two elements, a water baptism or water, which is baptism in Jesus name and the spirit, which is the Holy Ghost. First uh, Peter three uh, twenty one says, talks about Noah and, and the and the flood, and it says the like figure, mm -hmm. wherein to even baptism doth now also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, like Nicodemus talked about being born again in the mothers, We're not putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so by the Holy Ghost, res the resurrection. You, you have a, a clean conscience also through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So we find out that the washing causes a new conscience, that the Holy Ghost causes a new conscience. So 1 Peter 3.21 tells us that baptism now doth save us. And Mark 16.16 16 says, if he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, he that believeth not shall be damned. A lot of people take this into, out of context by saying, well, it doesn't say if you're not baptized, you won't be saved. Uh, but obviously, if you don't believe, you won't be baptized. So Jesus put the two together that if you believe, if, if you don't believe and am baptized, you won't be saved. Mm -hmm. Meaning that if you just believe and you're not baptized, that you could still be lost. Right. And so uh, that being said, I mean, I don't know if there's any scriptures unless I missed any that actually proves that that is water. Uh, baptism in Jesus name other than than what I just mentioned but but I said you know it the fact that Jesus on in verse three and then coming back in uh, verse six talks of, uses the word born or verse seven I mean comes back and uses the word born again he's talking about a second birth happening mm -hmm. yes. and then obviously cleared it up when Nicodemus was hoping that it was talking about a natural birth. Right, right well look at the term born again too it actually means born from above uh, so to set the, the context for the passage, he's saying born from above, and this is how you do it by water and spirit. So obviously he's not talking about a natural birth. Plus there's such a thing as dry birth where, uh, the water yes. doesn't break. Okay. And does that exclude sure. people that are dry Good born? Point. Good point. <laughs> I mean, so, you don't get to go to kingdom heaven. Exactly. I also would say too, if I could, I've also yeah, go ahead. mentioned this Matthew three and two, uh, John the Baptist talks about, he says, uh, why did John the Baptist come into the world? Obviously, he's the forerunner for Jesus Christ. But he comes preaching. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what did John the Baptist do? We understand he baptized people unto repentance. Yes. And then Jesus says, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must be born of water and of spirit to enter into the kingdom of God. So there's the, the correlation between John the Baptist saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand 
Here's repentance, baptism. It, kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus, you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, baptism, Holy Ghost. Yes, yeah, so, so, good. So. All right, last question. Whew, goodness. Uh, I think we hit a new record, gentlemen. <laughs> um, okay, this is the very last one. And I actually thought this is a good question. I read this in a, a study Bible. And uh, in fact, I'll just reference is the Life of the Spirit study Bible. And the guy was arguing against baptism being essential here. Okay, so this is the question that was posed. Isn't the water in John 3, 5 the same as the spirit birth? John 7, 37. Okay, so let's read it. John 3, 5. We just read it a minute ago, but I'm going to read it again. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And his argument was, if you look, he goes on to say, That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, You must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound there, but canst thou tell whence it cometh or whether it goes. So is every man that is born of the Spirit. So he's saying water and spirit are really the same things because look at John 7, 37 through 39. Last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit. And then he also tied this in with John 4, where Jesus said, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. The water that I shall be in him a well of water springing up in everlasting life. So he's saying that if you look at the context of John, you're seeing that water is actually a type of the Spirit. So he said he's just using two uh, uh, ways of saying the same thing. So he says, unless you're born of water and of the spirit. So that is all talking about one component, one, one thing in spirit. Okay. First of all, I would say John does refer to water as baptism. John one twenty six. John answered them saying, I baptize with water. Mm -hmm. Okay. John one thirty one. uh, therefore am I come baptizing with water. John one thirty three. um, it says, and I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water. Okay, I'm not reading the whole thing just for the sake of time. John 3, 23, uh, it says, And John also was baptizing uh, in Anon near to Salim because there was much water there. And they came and they were baptized. So I'd argue, actually, there's more references to water being baptism than there is to water being the Spirit. But to seal the point home, this will devastate the point, okay? Uh, let me say this. Who wrote this? John. Apostle John. Okay. Let's go over to 1 John 5 and 8. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. Uh, now, he counted water and spirit as separate witnesses that combine with the blood to present one agreed truth. Some believe that this is referring to the three witnesses of Jesus as Messiah, his water referring to his baptism, spirit, the spirit descending on him like a dove, and the blood, his crucifixion on the cross when he shed his blood. Water is a witness for us too. Baptism in Jesus' name. Spirit is obviously Holy Ghost and filling. Blood is a witness for us. When you repent, you're baptized in Jesus' name. You're filled with his spirit. You have three witnesses that agree in one. So if you, all you got to do is look at the same author. He said there's three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. So clearly, if you tie that in with John 3, 5, he's meaning them as two separate witnesses. Yes. All right. Well, uh, yeah, there, there, there we go. Woo. That was quite a, uh, a thing. I think next time we maybe only should have tackled like 10 questions <laughs> instead of 14. I thought this would take us less time, but it, it didn't, unfortunately. Well, thank you so much for listening. 
And uh, hopefully this will be a blessing to everybody out there. I wonder if we just in closing could say a word of prayer. Sure. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Jesus, Lord thank God. you so thank much you for this opportunity that we've had to study thank the word of God. Today, God. God, I'm asking that you would speak to every heart and soul. Bless this podcast, Lord. God, I pray that you would let the right people hear it. Maybe people struggling with certain issues, Lord, that we've addressed here tonight. We can do nothing without you, Jesus. We pray, Lord, take these loaves and fishes which we've offered up and increase them and multiply them and feed souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Glory to God.